Scripture reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. The wilderness and the land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks deeply to our hearts and our souls. It speaks to our behavior and our will and our emotions. So we pray that you would speak to us and our whole person this morning, and may we leave here changed because we have encountered you in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Richard Floyd uh, said this about Advent. He said, Advent is a time for telling the truth. The truth about our weariness and anxiety, yes, but also the truth of the relentless generosity of God, which opens up futures that seem to be shut down. In short, Advent tells us the truth about hope. The second half of the Old Testament, uh, if you've spent some time in there, you'll discover the second half of the Old Testament is, is mostly written by prophets of God. These were men who received words from God and then they had to communicate those words to God's people. And the, the prophets were, were the ultimate truth tellers. They told the truth even when that truth was really inconvenient, even when it was incredibly controversial, and they spent time confronting God's people on the ways that they had accommodated to the systems of the world that were around them, the ways that they had let their values be informed by the ways of this world rather than the kingdom of God. And often their, their words would serve as an incredible wake-up call, a really uncomfortable wake-up call at times for God's people. I can remember when I, was, uh, when I was in college, we did what most college students do, and we did lots of pranks against one another in the dorm. And I could 
tell you all sorts of stories about pranks that we pulled off that we were really proud of, and we, we till, still tell the stories of those pranks today. But, but I'll tell you the story about once when I was the receiving end of that prank, and it was, uh, it was in the middle of the night one night. I was in a, a deep sleep in my bed, and one of my really good friends uh, silently entered into my room and uh, I was on the top bunk, and he climbed up the ladder on that top bunk like a, like a ninja. Uh, he was so quiet, which was really impressive because he was about twice the size that I was. And uh, while I was laying in bed, he kind of crawled up into the bottom of the bed and then jumped in a full pounce on top of me while I was in a deep sleep. You can imagine my response uh, to this sort of experience. It was an incredible wake-up call, and he got me good on that one. And I thought about that this week, that disruptive wake-up call, as I read in the book of Isaiah these wake-up calls that were given to the prophets to share with God's people. They weren't often physical wake-up calls like I received that day in the prank, but they were spiritual ones. Ones that addressed the heart. Ones that addressed God's people's relationship with the God Most High. And often they came in the form of story or of picture. And this prophecy that we just read this morning is really no different because the prophets understood that image and story are really the back door to our hearts. They communicate things that, that seep into our imagination and in a backdoor way wake up our hearts to the real reality of things and ultimately the reality of a coming king. And there's three images in, in this particular passage that the prophet Isaiah uses to communicate his message to God's people. And the first image is a desert garden. And you see it in verses 1 to 3, and he also picks up the image later in verse 6. He says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. One of the things that you have to do whenever you come to the prophets, you have to use your imagination. And we have to use our imagination when it comes to a passage like this. Most of us live uh, in a very urban and modern context, which is very different than the context in which this was originally written. You see, Isaiah's audience knew this image well. The desert and the wilderness was something they'd all experienced, and when they thought about it, the word that came to mind was danger. You see, if you were in the desert or in the wilderness, that meant you had no refuge or any sort of protection. You were subject to the forces of nature that could come up at any moment, and the desert was full of of the lack of resources, You knew that all sorts of of unsavory people lived in the desert. So, So to be stuck in the desert meant danger, it meant vulnerability, and it meant often that your life could be threatened or taken from you at any moment. And yet what Isaiah does here so powerfully is he reverses this image from one of danger to one of joy. 
Danger is turned into gladness in this image. Flowers representing all sorts of life and vitality bloom and carpet the desert floor. Forest glory is attributed to the wilderness and the desert. And and he even uses personification here to say that the land itself sings and rejoices. Water flows in the desert land, grasses and vegetation all spring up all over the desert. And and what we get is an image of thirst that isn't just quenched, but is met abundantly with flowing streams. Hunger that isn't just satisfied, but is provided for with dense vegetation. So in this image reversal, scarcity is replaced with abundance. Now, why would Isaiah use this image? Why would, he, why would he turn this image on itself? And we get the answer here in verse 2, the hinge point in some ways of this passage. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. The context is, is really important here to understand what is happening for Isaiah's audience. You see, If you've read the book of Isaiah, you'll know that the first half is not a particularly cheerful book. It's actually a very discouraging book full of kind of impending doom. And what it tells us is that the nation of Israel at this point is facing a tremendous sort of pressure. We know that they at this point in their history were very weak and they were vulnerable because two mighty armies and nations were threatening their very existence. There was the, the Assyrian Empire that was on their doorstep and, and the Babylonian Empire, another greater, bigger nation, was looming on their doorstep as well. So in every sort of way, the nation of Israel was outnumbered and they were outmatched and they were incredibly vulnerable. So because of this, the leaders of the nation began to strategize. What are we supposed to do here to deal with all these threats that are at our doorstep? And they began to consider all sorts of alliances and political alliances. And and one of those alliances that they considered was an alliance with the Egyptians. Maybe we could ally ourselves with them and they will help us to deal with this crisis. And they were wrestling through, should we put our trust in this political alliance in order to protect us from our threats, in order to protect us from this impending doom? And Isaiah chapter 28 to 32 is God's answer to it. It's God's message to his people. And the message is simple. Don't trust in the things of this world. It is foolish for you to trust in the Egyptians to save you. Don't be defined by the values and the systems and the strategies of this world. Don't accommodate yourself to their thinking or their systems, but instead, in spite of all the threats and the impending doom, instead, trust in God. See, Isaiah chapter 3 is Isaiah's answer to that question. It's his answer to the question, what happens to us if we trust in God instead of the nations or the world around us? And the answer is, God will come and turn your desert 
into a garden. Trust in the arrival of the King of Kings and you will experience everlasting joy. Verse 4, behold your God, he will come and save you. Look to God and find your salvation. Trust in the arrival of the King of Kings and experience abundance in the desert place. You see, all these images in this passage paint a picture of what happens when we trust in God versus trusting the things of this world. The second image is is the image of the marginalized. And it's picked up in verses 5 to 7. And I want you to just imagine this as I read part of it. Imagine this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, the blind and the deaf and the lame and the mute were the most marginalized of people in Isaiah's culture. This is, in many ways, a roll call of all those people that society believes are worthless. Those people that can't help but change their own condition. But what Isaiah says is that when the king comes, at the arrival of the king, all of these things will be changed. And if you fast forward to the New Testament in in Matthew chapter 9, you find Jesus healing a man who had been paralyzed for his entire life. Later in the chapter, Jesus heals two blind men, giving them sight. Later in the same chapter, Jesus restores speech to a man who is mute. And then just two chapters later, in Matthew chapter 9, John the Baptist's disciples, they they come to find Jesus. They were sent by John the Baptist to find Jesus. And they they come to find Jesus and they say, "Can can you tell us who you really are? Can you tell us what your identity is? Who are you really? What should we expect from you? And Jesus says this, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is saying, go back to John and tell them, John, you remember all those things that were foretold in the prophet of Isaiah? What he told you about the coming of the king? They are happening. I am the king that you have been waiting for. The third image that we see here, the final image we're going to look at, is the image of a highway, verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed of the Lord shall walk there. You see, the roads and and the terrain of the ancient world uh, were often winding, they were very dangerous, uh, they were often very mountainous, and they were indirect. So to have a highway, a straight path, would be an incredible blessing. 
I was uh, reminded of that simply this week. Um, I spend uh, two afternoons a week out in Owings Mills. Um, and uh, this week, I think it was uh, Wednesday, uh, I was driving home from Owings Mills and I'd remembered that there was a, a police funeral that was shutting down all of the highways in the, in the Baltimore metropolitan area. If you were trying to drive through it, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, but I'd remembered that there was the police funeral, so I decided I'm going to go the back ways home. And I went through towns and stoplights, and, and what was a normal 20-minute trip wound up being a, an hour-and-a-half trip. But I was thankful that I didn't sit in traffic, but it left me with a newfound thankfulness for highways, a straight and direct path. You see, highways now and both in the ancient world provided ease, they provided safety, they provided simplicity. This was true in Isaiah's day, it's true in our days as well. But I have to tell you that my absolute favorite highway is in North Carolina. And I'm going to tell you about this highway. My, uh, my, part of my extended family lives in North Carolina and it's about a six-hour trip. And this particular highway comes at the very end of that long trip. And we have four kids, and they are all pretty young, and you can only imagine what a six-hour drive with four kids is like. It is not often very fun, and I have lots of stories I can tell you about that as well. But at the very end of the trip, after we've been driving for five and a half hours, we get to this one highway, and it's a toll highway And it's brand new, which means the locals don't want to spend any money to get on this toll highway. But I believe it is worth every single penny at that point in my drive to get on that highway. And I know that when I get on that highway, it's this four-lane beauty with no other traffic anywhere. And I know when I get on that highway, we can fly. And at the very end is our destination. And I can't tell you what a blessing That highway is to me in that moment. You see, this king that Isaiah speaks of, he says that he will bring a highway. And at the end of that highway, the destination is the very presence of God himself. Verse 10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You see, the very presence of God is an existence without any sort of sorrow or any sort of sighing. Just imagine that for a moment. What an existence that will be like. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, they'll sing as they make their way home to Zion, unfading halos of joy encircling their heads, welcomed home with gifts of joy and gladness as all sorrows and sighs scurry off into the night. The joy will be everlasting. Now, it's by no accident that Thomas, one of Jesus' followers, comes to Jesus in John chapter 14, and he asks Jesus an important question. He says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was effectively saying, I am the king who has come to make the way. 
And the road that Isaiah describes is safe. No lions shall be there. It belongs to holiness, those who have been made clean. The redeemed and the ransomed are those who walk on it. And they are the ones who will eventually arrive at everlasting joy. Jesus is saying that he is the way. Because he was the the only one who was worthy of walking that path to God. And yet this king chose to redeem and ransom a people for himself. And his instructions are simple. Trust in him. You see, Isaiah was telling God's people, don't trust in man to save you from the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Instead, behold your God. He has come to save you. And friends, what the gospel tells us is that our foes are much greater than man-made armies. Our foes are sin and death itself. So what Isaiah's message that he says to God's people is true of us too. Don't trust in yourself to make it all work. Don't trust in the system or the values of this world to make you right. That path is not a path that leads to everlasting joy. Instead, behold your God. He will come to save you. He has come to to undo everything that has gone wrong in the world. And so place your trust in him. Place your trust in him who was born to Mary and Joseph. One who was born to redeem and ransom a people for himself. His arrival is the arrival of joy everlasting. And we experience his kingdom in part now, but one day We will experience it in all of its fullness. I'll close with a a quote from John Calvin. He said this, God not only begins, but conducts to the end the work of our salvation. That his grace in us might not be useless or unprofitable. And he opens up the way, so he paves it and removes obstacles of every description and is himself the leader during the whole journey. In short, he continues his grace towards us in such a manner that he at length brings it to perfection. Friends, trust in this king. Trust in the king of kings because he is the way. And he will carry you to everlasting joy. Let's pray.